0: There are these moments in life where the plot slows down. And it's like you're Jonah and suddenly finding yourself in the belly of a great fish. And whether you want to or not, you become deeply aware of your own sin. The kind of moment I'm talking about, it often comes with a crisis Often the crisis is of our own making. Some foolishness that we're up to breaks the banks and spills out into the open. Children. I'm talking about those moments when you get caught. When your parents discover the thing that you've been doing, the thing that's not good. And now you're in trouble. For so much of our life, we ignore our darker shadows. We keep them hidden. But many of you know full well that inside of you, there is a monster, a disease, a dragon. Uh, Victor Hugo, in one of my favorite passages in Les Miserables, says, A many-headed hydra. Crawling around in the depths of our souls. Now on the surface. We grow up as children who get in trouble when we get caught. And unfortunately for many of us, it doesn't mean we stop doing bad. It means we get better at hiding what we do. We learn all kinds of ways to project the image that we've got it all together, that all is well. But so many of you know, like me, that all is not well. Now, in the message last week, I focused on the most important purpose of the church, to worship God, to gather together on Sunday mornings for public, ritualized, joy-filled worship. And I pushed us as a church to face up to our responsibility to take Harrisonburg seriously. That a church for the glory of God will become a church pushed out for the good of its city. Worship and mission. So you could say that last week I focused on the journey up and the journey out. But there is another journey that every church must go on. To live for the glory of God and for the good of the city, our lives must match our message. The journey out into the world, working for the good of the city, must be, it must be accompanied by an equivalent journey inside. The journey in, where we allow God to raise up the hydra and to transform us. The journey up and the journey out, it must be accompanied by the journey in. It would be a massive mistake for us, the Church of the Incarnation, if we place so heavy of an emphasis on our worship and our witness and our mission that we neglect the work of Christ in our own hearts and in our own character. Now, that's the passage of Scripture that Spencer read to us. Look in your Bible at Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. And then it gives the whole purpose for the book to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing and righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion. To the youth. Now, this is the journey in. I'm talking about the power of God making us, working in us, transforming us so that we are people who truly possess real wisdom, righteousness, and justice, so that we are marked by actions of equity. So that we become prudent and knowledgeable and we have discretion. Becoming holy is the way Paul would describe this. This process of being deeply transformed into this kind of person. This is the process some call discipleship. This morning I'll call spiritual formation. Skip down to verse 7. What is the beginning point of this whole process? What is the context in which this kind of change can occur in your life and my life? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And jump over to chapter 9, verse 7. This is the last chapter of the introduction to the book of Proverbs. After chapter 9, it shifts gears entirely. So the book of Proverbs has a long introduction and it begins and ends that introduction with the same statement. Look at chapter 9, verse 7, verse 10. Chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The starting point for you to be truly changed is fearing God. True Deep character transformation can only grow out of this context, the fear of the Lord. This starting point for true deep change is a holy reverence for Yahweh. Now, the word Lord in your Bible, most likely, in both in chapter 1, verse 7, and chapter 9, verse 10, it's written in a slightly different font. In one way or another, to indicate to you that he's not just using a generic term, the fear of the great power in the sky, but he's actually naming the God of the Old Testament who had a name and that God was Yahweh. The starting point for wisdom is not spirituality. It is a profound, holy reverence for one God, the God Yahweh, the God that we learn about in Scripture, A reverence that recognizes and allows that one God to be God. The starting point of deep change in our lives is that we have to recognize we are not God. Now, it may seem obvious to say that we are not God. But in reality, it's one thing to confess that and a different thing entirely to live that out. Here in our modern society, we are heirs of both the achievements and the idolatries of the Enlightenment. Scientific progress and technology have been very helpful. None of us want to revert to a life before penicillin, right? None of us want to turn the clock back on the incredible gains that the Enlightenment brought us. But accompanying the profound progress of modernity and the Enlightenment, is a terrible idol. The supreme confidence in ourselves to solve our problems. A profound sense of self-sufficiency. We don't want to return to the Dark Ages, but the Dark Ages had it right on one thing. You can't fix it. See, there's a price to be paid for all of our technological, medical, educational advancements. It is this subtle indoctrination into the cult of self-sufficiency. But the reality is there are moments in life where our mistakes catch up to us, where our bad habits and our terrible selfishness and our sins, there are moments in life where it's like we're Jonah in the belly of some great fish. The whole plot slows down and we are left with nothing but our mess and our shame and our despair and our own darkness. There are these moments in life, whether you're a child who just got caught Or you're an adult where you're brought face to face with the brutal truth that there is serious brokenness and sin embedded in your heart and your character. But here's the important issue for us this morning. When a person is brought to God in Christ, the brokenness does not disappear. It's still there. Here's what I want us to see this morning. The human problem does not disappear. It can only be dismantled. It requires an arduous process of dismantling. There is no secret pill. There is no one-time experience that will fix you. Even this... Thing we're doing religion Christianity the truth coming to God in Christ even that does not and you know this those of you have been Christians the longest know this the most. The starting point is a holy reverence for God. Now our culture tells us if you're smart enough and you get the right kind of help you can solve all the problems. That simply is not true. It is some of the most educated nations that perpetrate some of the most wicked crimes. It is some of the most Christian people who perpetrate the most wicked behaviors. You know this. I know this. Our problem is that our choice for foolishness Instead of wisdom is a disease we've contracted called sin. And when we make foolish choices instead of wise choices, we are positioning ourselves rather than God as the center. The starting point of the deep change that you and I, to be frank, we don't want it. We, we resist it. The starting point for deep the deep change, not the surface, oh, I look better now. In fact, I've learned how to play the middle class game and I can achieve a successful and stable life. Not that. The starting point for the deep, profound transformation that you and I are so resistant to, the deep change that we run away from, just like Jonah, the change that we bolt and get out of dodge, Instead of facing up to the starting point for that deep change that our whole being resists in a thousand uncanny and sophisticated ways, the starting point is that holy reverence for God that decenters ourselves. So that God is God, and you and I are creatures, not creators, creatures, not God. This is the beginning point, the starting place, the foundation of true spiritual formation. And by returning to this again and again and again, by returning to a deep fear and reverence of one God who is the God, by doing that, wisdom will grow in our hearts. Justice will mark our lives, a deep discernment of what is equitable and what is not equitable. Prudence, these things will come to mark the recesses of our heart that are now marked by darkness. Now, like I said, our brokenness does not disappear. It can only be dismantled. And it is not the dismantling of a model airplane. It is the dismantling Of a super tanker. It is the work of a lifetime. It is long. It is a mountain. It is slow. It is difficult. It is a dismantling. Spiritual formation is not an instant experience. It is a very long process. One of my favorite authors says. If you want potatoes for dinner tomorrow night. You can't plant them in the garden tonight. Look in your Bibles at James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Starting in verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete, not lacking in in nothing. The testing of your faith produces. The idea there is that when you go through test of your faith, something begins to grow in you. What is it that grows in your life when you endure suffering and crisis and a test of faith? You know what grows in your life? Not not holiness, not godliness, a quality. A quality of patience and steadfastness. And that is a quality that in and of itself isn't the end of the game. It's a quality you require to become holy. Because holiness is about dismantling. It's about time. It's about a long journey. Do you see the middle quality in in the making of a holy person? It's steadfastness. It's the long game. It's it's patience. If you want potatoes for dinner tomorrow, it'll do you little good to go out and plant them today. Let me tell you an old story. In the 6th century... There were a lot of monks running around all over Egypt and northern Africa. The monastic movement had begun about 350 years prior to the moment I'm going to describe to you. It had begun in the Egyptian desert. And over the years and over the centuries, the monastic response to the brokenness of culture and the brokenness of individuals... Began to grow. And it turned into a movement. And it attracted hundreds and thousands. Of men and women. Who really wanted to live a holy life. A life that God would use. To redeem the age. You need to know. That the monastic movement. Was about the redemption of culture. It was about people being. So deeply transformed. That they could become the kind of people. God could use. So these monks. in these Monkesses would uh, gather into high-energy communities. And these high-energy communities, you don't think of monks as high-energy, but they were in a slow sort of way. They would gather into these high-energy communities, and the thing that held them together were their vows. Three vows. Anybody know? Chastity, poverty, and obedience. Yeah, we don't like that one, do we? Let's leave that one off. Chastity, poverty, and obedience. But there was a deep flaw in the monastic movement. There was within monasticism a latent anarchism. It was in the DNA of it. And it made the monks susceptible to spiritual wonderlust. Their approach to life was really close to the American frontier mentality combined with elements of free enterprise. It was not unusual by the 6th century for a monk to leave one monastery when as time went by it got ho-hum, less than ideal. And he'd hear about a holier abbot or a holier prioress or a better community of monks somewhere else. And so by the time you got to the 6th century, monasticism was committed to poverty and chastity and obedience until obeying this particular abbot or this particular community wasn't what it used to be. And so they would travel and find another community that was better. Now the reality is, That this kind of spiritual restlessness was really the issue. And their spiritual call to go to another community was just a disguise. So in the 6th century, here comes Saint Benedict. And he put a stop to this moving around. See, he added a fourth vow. Stability. He says, we can't do what we're called to do. If we don't stay in place. Stay where you are. Now we don't live in an age of monasticism. But we suffer from the same spiritual wanderlust. Ours didn't grow out of the monastic movement. It grew out of this American heritage. That was right in the middle of the frontier movement. And right in the middle of our kind of economic approach to life. The deepest work of God in your life requires stability. It requires a long obedience in the same direction. It requires you to stop moving. And to stop running away when you're bored or uncomfortable. Or your group no longer fits your, la- your narrow defined parameters. Spiritual wanderlust is the enemy of spiritual formation. Never underestimates, never underestimate your ability to deceive yourself as to why you're leaving and moving. I'm not saying there's never a time to move. There's never a time to change communities. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying you need to never underestimate your innocence in a move. You have a tremendous capacity. And the reason I know this about you is because I'm one of you. We have a tremendous capacity for self deception and it runs its deepest when God fingers the darknesses of our heart and we will bolt. We will run in a thousand ways. We will find a way to wiggle out to greener pastures and we will believe with all of our heart that we've taken the high road. That we're pursuing righteousness and godliness and holiness. And it's really nothing other than a sissy running away. Your soul is like a farm. To be whole again, you and I must be willing to spend 50 years reclaiming the land. See, some of you... Or probably looking for the right church now. And let me say to you. Stop. Just pick one. And stick it out for the next 50 years. A mediocre church that you are committed to. Will be a thousand times more powerful in your life. Than you picking the best sermon at this place. And the best music at that place. And this church for that season. And this church for this season. Just stop. Stop. Pick a place and get in the ordinary rut of life. And look, if you think this is the right church, I've got news for you. Everything is shiny and bright and glittering now. But I promise you, in a year or two or three or four or five, it will get to be just like your marriage. And it'll be just like your old church. And only then can the deep work really start. You see the deep work of transformation never happens on the honeymoon, never. The profound changes you're experiencing in your life as you come into the life of this new church are just on the surface. The deep work it takes stability. It takes time. Spiritual formation begins with God, with the fear of God, and it requires stability Two things. Number three, spiritual formation requires prayer. This is our passage from Luke chapter 11. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. I've pointed this out before. They grew up in a culture of prayer. The only thing I can give to you to help you understand how enculturated they were in a life of prayer is for you to think about a devout Muslim in a city that prays five times a day, kneeling and pointing their bodies to Mecca. Can you imagine a child growing up in that culture? These people grew up in that type of culture. They had been praying. It was their heritage. They prayed better than you. They prayed longer than you. They prayed more than you. And when they Encountered Jesus Jesus' praying. They said, we know nothing about prayer. We have to be taught how to pray. You teach us. Spiritual formation requires that you learn how to pray. Not spontaneous prayers, not the kind of prayers you already know how to do, but the kind of praying you don't know how to do. Spiritual formation requires that, we, that prayer has to become something more than a pious wish, That we must dive into the ocean depths of prayer. If you are not learning to pray, the hydra in your soul will remain there. Now, like I said earlier, our culture tells us if we're smart enough and we get the right kind of help, we can solve all our problems. But it is not true. And it is also not true that if you are a Christian, you become a Christian, then the church or the Bible or even God himself Will solve your problems. He won't. The truth is. There are not very many happy people in the Bible. Have you read it lately? But there are people. Who are experiencing. Joy. And peace. And meaning. As they suffer. The work of spiritual formation. Is the ability to recognize grace in the pit and to say, do you suppose God wants to be with me in a way that does not involve changing my spouse or getting rid of my spouse or my kids? Do you suppose God wants to be with me in a way that does not involve moving? And finding greener pastures. Do you suppose God wants to be with me. In a way that involves doing something in me. That I could never experience. Without the pain and suffering. Of this family. This spouse. This job. This house. This place. Spiritual formation. Requires the ability to recognize the grace. To stay. In those moments. Now, how does this happen? Once we stand before God and recognize that he is God and we are not, then what? What happens for us to be transformed into people of wisdom and righteousness and justice and equity and prudence and knowledge to be filled with discretion? The short answer is prayer. An ongoing dialogue with the source of life. Yahweh. You see, prayer done right. Places us before the face of God. Which is precisely where spiritual formation occurs. Prayer done right. That's the disciples. Lord, teach us to do it right. Because our inclination, our habits of praying, what comes natural in prayer, hasn't worked. Now, when it comes to learning how to pray, it's an ocean. I only have a few minutes left. So two things. Just scratching the surface. But two things that God has led me to for us this week. First of all learning to pray requires being in a church and attending worship. I'm picking out the things that I think might be counterintuitive to us. Learning to pray well and right requires being in a church and attending Sunday worship. Now look we live in an American society where the focus of praying is private prayer. And I bet up until now, you thought all of my words about prayer have been about you going off somewhere and spending more time privately praying. I I bet if if I was allowed to bet, if my mom didn't discipline me for that and would actually, she had a deal if we made a bet, she got both people's money, which worked out in her favor. So if I were allowed to bet, I bet that you've been thinking this whole time about how little you pray during the week on your own. See, our American society has indoctrinated us into thinking that primary prayer, fundamental prayer, is private prayer. As opposed to what we do in worship called common prayer. That's wrong. The primary prayer in scripture is common prayer. Think about the fact that you've all likely missed what I've been saying up until now because of that basic fact. But when you take scripture seriously, you discover that most praying and the fundamental praying and the primary praying in scripture is common praying. It's common prayer. It's the kind of prayer we do in our worship service. If you were to come to me and say, teach me how to pray, Aubrey. Which is my goal as a pastor. I know that I'm pastoring well. When that is the thing I'm most known for. And it's not my leadership. And it's not my administration. If you were to come to me and say. Aubrey teach me to pray. I would say to you. Go to church. Come to our church. On Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. And that's where you learn how to pray. Of course, your prayer life that is rooted here continues into private prayer. And that is very important. But in the long history of Christianity, community prayer is most important. And then individual prayer. They have a circular relationship. You need to dive deep into the depths during the week. And that feeds what happens here. But this is the foundation. Why? I'm so glad you asked. Let me just give you two reasons that you might not have thought of. I've talked about this before. I'm not going to repeat some of the things I've said at other times. Two reasons. Number one, in common prayer, we are led in prayer. You see, we all have this problem. We tend to think that prayer is our initiative. I've got this need, this emergency, I'm hurting, I'm in crisis, my friend is ill, so I pray. And the emphasis is on me, and I have the sense that when I pray, I started something. But what happens when you go to church? Some of you, in a few minutes, when we go to prayer, you're going to be frustrated. You were frustrated earlier because our prayers were written... And you didn't get to have that meaningful, spontaneous prayer. And it was given to you. You were led in prayer. You were told, pray this. And you weren't given any other space to do your own kind of heartfelt, existential, personal kind of prayer. And then in a, few other, in a few minutes a little bit later, somebody else is going to come up and just like a baby teaching them to walk, which is what we are in prayer, somebody else is going to come up and take us all by the hand and say, pray this, now pray this, now pray this, now pray this. Now you have a few minutes to pray whatever you want. Okay, now pray this and pray this. See, one of the reasons common prayer is so important is it decenters you. The emphasis is not on you. In church, you sit there and then you stand when you're told and you kneel when you're told and you don't start it. You're responding. Which means that you're humbled and your ego is no longer at the center. And that is fundamental to learning how to pray. To learn how to pray, we must understand that our prayers are responses to God. The worshiping congregation, hearing the word read and preached and celebrating in the sacraments. That is where we learn how to pray. And it's where we practice praying. It's the center of our prayer life. And from here we go into our closets or onto the mountain or hiking down the trail or wherever you go for your personal prayer time. So learning to pray requires being in a church And attending worship. One other thing. Learning to to pray takes time. It takes time to develop the kind of life in which all of your life is consciously and unconsciously connected with God in an intimate way. It takes time to develop a life of prayer. It does require the private praying. It does require that you set aside disciplined, deliberate time. It is not accomplished on the run. The kind of praying I'm talking about cannot be accomplished on the run. I cannot be busy and pray at the same time. I can be active and pray. I can work and pray, but I cannot be busy and pray. I cannot be inwardly rushed and distracted and dispersed because in order to pray, to really pray, I have to be paying more attention to God than to what other people are saying to me or claiming of me or requesting of me. I have to pay more attention to God than to my own clamoring ego. And most of our busyness is about our ego. It's not about our importance. And for that to happen, for me to pay more attention to God than to myself or all of the people knocking on the door of my life, for me to do that, there must be a deliberate withdrawal from the noise of the day, a disciplined detachment from my own insatiable self. It takes time and courage to let ourselves be, I love this, Thomas Merton said this, to let ourselves be brought naked and defenseless into the center of that dread where we stand alone before God in our nothingness, without explanation, without theories, completely dependent on his providential care in dire need of the gift of his grace and mercy. The man who wrote that had followed a long, hard, suffering road to get there. Look, we live in a painful world and that is not going to change with a divorce or a new job or a new house or a new look, new clothes, the loss of weight, the gain of weight. This pain-filled, sin-stormed world that we live in is where spiritual formation occurs. And God has given us the responsibility in the midst of this world of sharing the incredible good news of God's forgiveness and of new life in Christ. But to do that well. To follow God on the journey out. Where we really do share the message with our family and our friends and our workmates. To do that, our lives must match the message. If we're going to avoid the fraud of popular religion. If we're going to avoid the strychnine of civic religion. If we're going to do that. We must not resist when God puts his finger on the deep brokennesses in our lives. God offers you. He offers me that deep formation that can make us into holy people. People who are fully human and fully ourselves. Now, you and I, we've got incredible strategies For avoiding this kind of change. And to be honest. What we're doing now. Is one of our most sophisticated. We wrap ourselves. In the rituals. And the practices. Of religion. We wrap ourselves. In our jobs. And in our busyness. We have these incredible strategies. For portraying a life. That has it together. But God offers you freedom. He offers you transformation. It begins with the fear of God. It requires stability. It requires us to become people of prayer. Our journey up into the presence of God and our journey out into this world must be matched by the journey in. Let's pray.